Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a class from our 2022 Elul Learning Series. When Rabbi Schatz, my good friend, um, checked in with me and said, would you do a, a Back to the Basics class, I offered a few ideas. And I think Ari, uh, who I hadn't met yet, said, well, we need an Israel. Israel sounds good, um, which is funny. Um, I saw there was like a Back to the Basics being offered on um, being a Gabbai or Torah, you know, half Torah reading or skills that, um, frankly, people can be a really involved synagogue Jew, even at a place like TBA, where I don't know, we have a really large cadre of super uh, educated Jews and still might not have picked up on, on the skills to be uh, um, whether whatever it is, half Torah reading or being a Gabbai. Um, and in an hour can walk away with some really, really useful nuts and bolts skills. And we have tons of wonderful uh, Betham folks who can teach that. Um, Israel is, I think, the opposite end of the spectrum. I, I, I would um, be pretty darn skeptical um, about the idea that there's anyone in the Betham family doesn't have a really strong Israel story. So what does it mean to go back to the basics? I think it's, it's exactly that. It's going back and um, re-examining a story that we probably know um, very, very well, and maybe um, thinking about the story differently, reopening that story, um, and looking at it in a new way. Um, so I, I to, to prompt this, and I, I see we only have two volunteers uh, to choose from, so maybe we'll get a volunteer, um, and if not, I'll, I'll volunteer myself, but, um, and, I, and I'll, I'll, Tybal, I'll call on you in one second, but um, what, what I'm what I'm looking for is to start with is whether either of you has a um, a story that's really I take a step back from Israel a story of um, your family who you are where you've come from that you told yourself and told yourself and kind of knew so well that you could tell it you know if somebody roused you at three in the morning and asked you to tell that story you would be able to tell it perfectly and then something happened where you saw a new angle on that story and boom. It, it, it shook you up, right? It, it, um, had you rethinking the way you wanted to tell that story because you're now seeing it from another angle. Um, I'm, I'm kind of feeling, um, kind of William Faulkner-esque, right? We, um, uh, Sound and the Fury, the same, you know, they get this story told by different, different folks and you get a different perspective by hearing the story through different eyes. So, um, if either Tybal or Jackie is able to maybe share an account like that, or Ari, frankly, um, you're welcome to do so. Uh, any story about yourself, about your family, about your hometown that you um, l- learned a different way of telling it? I'd be curious to hear that. Um, and if not, I'll I'll try to play that out. And um, Tybal, I see you're, you're unmuting, so go for it. Right. Well, because as I often say, I'm a firstborn from two youngest. So when a teacher asks for something, I'm like, I have to jump. Um, and also what you've asked is a very dangerous thing to ask a de- genealogist. Great. Love it. But how dark do you want to go? You, 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 uh, you're my volunteer. So you can go, you go the direction it feels right to go. Yeah. But, and what if I bore Ari? Cause I think he's heard this before. I'll never be bored of any of your stories. Oh, because this uh, this just came up yesterday where I was trying to explain something uh, to someone. 
And it's a little, it's not that my frame changed, but I now have a different frame. So okay. I'll do it. I'll do it this way. Um, I'm from a part of Pittsburgh that did not have Jews or blacks or you name it growing up. I had a class of over 900 and there were five Jews. Wow. So we were really visible. Five Jews, two blacks. They were visible too. Um, and to Jews in a certain way, oh, and I should say, and most of them were the kind of descended from Eastern European Roman Catholics who really did think Jews had horns. Okay. Wow. So, um, and I still remember once being at a kiddish at a local Bethesda conservative shul meeting somebody from the Jewish part of Pittsburgh. And I remember saying to her, this was supposed to be a rational person. Oh, where are you from? I said, I'm not from the Jewish part. Oh, where are you from? And then I said, Whitehall. And she looked at me and said, but no Jews live there. And I thought, idiot. <laughs> Sorry. I just told you that it was going to be unexpected anyway. So, um, but it just so happens. And in my school system, public school all the way, 13 years with kindergarten, there really was institutionalized anti-Semitism. I'll just leave it there. Um, and what came as no surprise to me, the massacre shooter was from my neighborhood, dropped out of my school system. So oh, yeah. it's a different. Yeah, but it didn't take me by surprise. As I said, I mean, I actually knew enough to know the funeral home that everybody uses in Pittsburgh, the Jewish one. I started looking at that to see the names of the victims before they were publicly released, all those things. And before the shooter was identified, I was like, hmm. I mean, there was only one mystery, which I won't take the time with, is why he picked Squirrel Hill and not Mount Lebanon. But I eventually figured that out, why he did that. Oh, and the short answer is security. Mount, Mount Lebanon synagogues, which are closer and more visible, had already had security because of an attempt in the Squirrel Hill synagogue did not. Um, but it's now when I say what I say, the people who truly didn't understand what it was like to grow up in a very different America Jewishly, mm. just for you, Rabbi Ephraim, mm. when I moved down here and I started teaching at a place called Jewish Study Center on the Metro, I would never say the word Jewish because that's my Pittsburgh background. I'm trapped on the Metro. There could be an anti-Semite here. I mean, this is this was ordinary life for me in America from childhood. And I'll just say the reframing is because now people get it when I can do the tagline, the neighborhood and the school system that produced the massacre shooter. And the American jurisprudence, because people are still waiting and the victims and survivors and family members still haven't had to testify yet. And that to me is torture upon torture. Thank you, America. OK, I'm done. Hey. So Tybel shared, um, I think there are a bunch of ways your story actually is useful as a paradigm for this idea of like, we know a story and we retell a story and we, and we see different angles on the story. So you offer, I think most American Jews look at the story of the awful shooting in the synagogue in Pittsburgh and wonder how that could come out of a part of Pittsburgh. And you tell a story, wait a minute, I knew a different piece of Pittsburgh where there really was terrific anti-Semitism and folks who grew up in the very Jewish neighborhoods were shocked by it. So that's a, that's a, you've offered them another narrative. I think you probably, there, there's just simply the narrative of, oh, I know Pittsburgh. Um, here's different angles of Pittsburgh. There's folks who say, 
who who have the story of no Jews live in that neighborhood and you have them rewrite the narrative. Wait, there are Jews who live in that neighborhood, even simply um, rewriting this narrative of what is America. Um, um, We, you know, somebody who lives in one place, hears one story of what is America and somebody who lives in another place has another story of this is America. Um, You have the story of, of I would never get on the DC Metro and talk with a friend I'm with to say I'm going to teach at a Jewish studies class and others would be shocked by that because they ride from the Silver Spring stop to the Union Station stop and sit with um, a friend talking about the Parsha every Wednesday morning. And it, it doesn't it doesn't even they don't even have a moment to pause. So your your story of America is very different from their story of America. I, I, I think that's dark, but it's actually a perfect illustration of what I'm tell of what I wanted to share, which is. Um, how we tell a story for years sits in us very, very deeply, and then we we might see it through another person's eyes, and the story is shifted radically. Um, and I think you know one of the places in and now I'm hesitant to use it because your American Jewish story title is so different than mine. I would say though, for most American Jews I've encountered, I'll at least still try to stay with most. Um, we have an Israel narrative, right? Um, if someone asked us to tell the story of the state of Israel in three minutes, we well, we might start with Dreyfus affair, right? This idea of very a clear moment of institutionalized um, anti-Semitism in Western enlightened Europe, uh, Herzl, eventually the first Zionist Congress, uh, this push for a return by Western European Jews to um, uh, Ottoman Palestine. World War One, the Balfour Declaration, these kind of series of aliot of of Western European Jews, the the tragedies um, and the catastrophe of the Shoah, and eventually the the UN vote in in, in uh, Haftet of November, so the 29th of November of 47, probably that street Haftet November, not far, I'm guessing, from where Jackie is living in Jerusalem, um, partition. And, um, and, and the beginning of a, of a Jewish state. That's kind of, I, I don't know. I, did I do it in three minutes? But that's roughly the American, like, and mainstream way we tell the story of Israel. Um, and to me, I, I wanted to kind of show, um, artifacts that for, that are like perfect v- visions of this. Ari, if you can share kind of my, my image one, which for me is like, I don't know. I can't think of a better image that tells the sto- that American Jewish story. It's not up on my screen yet, so I'm going to continue to ramble. But there we go. So we've got um, Paul Newman as Ari Ben Kanan, Eve Marie Saint as oh god, uh, Kitty Fremont. Am I right? I think so. Um, but got this gorgeous Hollywood retelling of that story. I mean, can you beat? Paul Newman as like founding Ashkenazi Jew uh, of this state um, and like that that kind of perfect story of of the founding of the state of Israel through the eyes of uh, Western European Ashkenazi narrative into the kind of um, pre-labor party story is is the story or you can you can take it down that that to me is is um, is like story a um, and and it's not everyone's story, right? It isn't. It isn't the only story of the founding of the state of Israel. I think what I what I wanted to do is offer kind of two other Israel stories that will complicate things, and just like 
Tybalt story, they may make the story more painful for us, but I hope that by um, re-examining this story of of whatever should we call it our second home, um, it'll it'll not only um, shake us up, it'll not only complicate the story, but it'll give us a better understanding of of the modern state of Israel and also. Maybe, maybe perhaps this little time we're like looking to make things better, right? Um, it'll, it'll help us, um, focus in on, on making, um, a better Israel for tomorrow. So I, I'm going to offer two, um, there could be two bazillion, but I'm going to offer two other windows into other Israel stories. So, and feel free to stop me. I'm, I see, uh, a message. Oh, cool. So I see Tybal is saying she has a first cousin who lives on Kaftep in November Street. So that's a that's a, a nice street that runs through West Jerusalem. Uh, Kaftep in November, for those who will catch this via um, a later podcast, is simply the Hebrew for the 29th of November. And that was the day in ni- the kind of in late 1947, where the UN took that, that, that vote of partition. There are great photos, um, had I put together more images, but um, you can Google it and find it in two minutes of the streets of Tel Aviv as folks are listening on their radios to the UN vote um, that'll that'll you know declare whether to partition Palestine and create a create a Jewish state. Um, okay, so f- complication A. We've 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 told the story. I think we typically tell the story of the founding of the state of Israel through the eyes of of Ashkenazi Jewry, those who came especially from from the west kind of the the paul newmany looking people kind of the the fact that we use dreyfus in france as such an important moment in herzl um and the story of kind of the relationship with the british um is very much a western european story uh, and then it and then it becomes more eastern european as as kind of the aliot come from the russian empire and then from the soviet union and from the eastern european countries but the story of the state of Israel is also very much a Mizrahi story. So Jews from North Africa, from the Middle East, who come in later immigrations, not, and again, not to say that there aren't, um, folks from Middle Eastern countries who are coming not only during the Zionist period, but before the kind of modern Zionism gets going in the late 19th century and during, um, but there are these mass immigrations of hundreds of thousands of folks who come after the uh, the forming of the state for a multiplicity of reasons, both um, efforts by the state to bring them in and rising anti-Semitism and violence against them in the countries they live in after the forming of the state. And they arrive and they face um, discrimination. They are often the last on the line to get an apartment. They come with very little and they get sent right to Ma'abarot, uh, tent villages. When they are finally offered, um, kind of permanent housing, they're often not offered the, the apartment in an area of the country with, um, a lot of, uh, economic opportunity, but they're offered, um, housing in the, per- what's known as the periphery. So outside of, you know, we, we talk about this in the U.S. We know this well, right? We talk about the Acela Corridor between um, D.C. and Boston, where there's tremendous um, kind of an economic engine of the country, the, the West Coast and kind of 
almost one mega center from the Bay Area down to San Diego with, again, lots of economic opportunity. And then other parts of the country that have a lot less um, economic opportunity. Um, that th- those are those peripheral places are often where those Mizrahim end up, those Jews from the Middle East. Um, that first in the Ma'abaro, they then once they end up there, they're not getting the good jobs. Those good jobs are going, even if they do make it to a city, they are the folks who are Ashkenazi immigrants who had gotten to the country first, who've got, who've joined the labor party, who have connections with the, um, the labor unions get the good jobs. And, um, they, there, there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of frustration. Um, and, um, they, they face, you know, discrimination and sometimes violence from police. And um, the, the famous marker of what happens is essentially that these folks um, turn against the Labor Party, the, 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 the party of, of um, Ben-Gurion and all of the kind of founding fathers and mothers, because we'll include Golda in that story, of the state of Israel. They end up connecting with the, the precursors to the Likud Party, and there's this Mahapach, this grand reversal in um the 77 election where finally for the first time um the labor party and the predecessors to the labor party are not able to kind of don't don't get a majority and are finally tossed out of power um but i I'd, I'd like to turn to another kind of image i'll ask ari are you on this call now he's here so um uh if you could bring up um image 2 if you can maybe is there a way if you can make it a little bigger if possible if not i'll i'll read from it a little bit but uh, this is a really so pe- folks know that's fine uh folks know um or 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 inside folks tend to know at least moderately inside folks tend to know and i'll i'll stop for any questions jackie or uh or Tybal might have in a minute but folks know the story of the mapach that famous 1977 Knesset election where for the first time <coughs> the center left parties don't um don't win the election um they know that story from 77 but really um, it's during those interwar years between 1967 and 73 that there's this first effort to kind of stand up to the Ashkenazi establishment. And hearing about the rise of the Black Panthers here in the U.S., a group of Mizrahim in Jerusalem, in kind of peripheral neighborhoods within Jerusalem that aren't getting a lot of goods and services, um, found their own Black Panther Party, the Israeli Black Panthers, to kind of stand up to say, we're not getting milk deliveries in this neighborhood. You're not putting heat in our buildings. You're not ensuring that our kids have, have frankly, um, kindergartens that they can go to. You know, you're, you're just not investing in our neighborhoods. And it, it's enough of it. We're fed up. We deserve equal treatment. And they, they organize to kind of protest. They first, they protest in front of the the mayor of Jerusalem, the famous Teddy Kollek's office, who tosses them off his lawn. They um, protest in front of the Kotel. They end up meeting with Golda. Um, they start organizing to steal the milk deliveries that are delivered to the rich neighborhoods and redistribute them in their neighborhoods at the crack of dawn. They organize their own kindergartens that kind of embarrass the state that it can't do that. Um, but the one artifact that they created which I think is just phenomenal and which was lost and rediscovered in the last half decade is in that 
um, in those first months of this protest movement, um, it comes upon Passover time and they decide to um, ter- create their own Seder to mark this moment, um, kind of a, a perfect moment. It's a moment used by Jews and Christians and, and frankly, anyone who knows of the Pesach story and to say, we want freedom, we want liberation. And they write their own Haggadah. They are, they're quite learned Jews and um, they, um, they put together their own Haggadah that they, that they read at their own Pesach Seder. And they thought that all for years, since 71, they thought that all of, um, that all of these Haggadot were lost until, um, in 2017, uh, I, I don't know, um, at some point, Jackie, you should, you should look him up, but the big reform synagogue in Tel Aviv called Beit Daniel, um, the rabbi there, the senior rabbi there is, uh, Rabbi Meir Azari. Maybe at some point, Jackie will end up there or another Beth Amer, who listens to this on podcast, will end up there. Um, in any event, Rabbi Meir Azari is a collector of Haggadot, and somehow he got his hands on a mimeograph 1971 copy of this Haggadah and um, tracked down um, one of the um, uh, living members of this group and said, would you be interested in this? Who, and he was just delighted to find it, um, contacted a group of folks. New Israel Fund, where I work, is a, is a part of the group that helped kind of republish this, retranslate this artifact and make it available to tell the story of um, this really, really important stage in, in this struggle to look for equality, look for justice, look for um, uh, equal rights for Mizrahi immigrants. And I'll find, hold on, let's see if I can play with my screen without totally falling apart here. I, I warned Ari that I, I do these on too small a screen and then I, when I need to, okay. So I'll just read a little clip from it. So they, they, I brought up the Manishtana page and they start with, Ach Manishtana Halayla Hazemikolayla. So, so what's the difference as, you know, between this night and every other night? Shebechol Halaylot Anu Ochlim Bakoshi Lechem Umayim, the Halayla Haze Eina Anu Ochlim Afilu Matzalmayim. They say on other nights, it's with difficulty that we're able to get just bread and water to eat. And tonight we don't even have enough to afford matzah and water. On other nights, kind of playing with the idea that we eat vegetables on other nights. They're saying we can't afford meat. On other nights, we eat only vegetables. So they rhyme on Yurakot and say on this night, the government is treating us like animals. All, all other nights were kind of shivering from cold because their buildings didn't weren't provided with enough heat. Um, and tonight we're we're terribly sad and heartbroken. So I'll, I'll pause. That just gives you this is a um Taibel told us that um she was sharing um, quite a dark story. Frankly, the, um, the 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 Israeli Black Panthers Haggadah is is equally, I would say, a dark story. These are not um, these are not folks who are feeling particularly um, empathetic to the government. They're not feeling particularly, um, you know, open to to kind of speaking with with light or um, kind tongues. They're they're feeling. Um, really, really angry. 
really, really disappointed, really upset, and they're they're tired of kind of asking nice nicely. Um, I can share with this group afterwards in an email, or if Ari maybe can help me. I, I there's a I have a can share a video of a, a I don't know a 12 minute tour that Ruven Abergel, who is one of the handful of kind of leaders, the kind of primary author of this Haggadah, took of his of his neighborhood and kind of telling the story of of um, writing this Haggadah, but. Um, you see deep, deep anger, deep frustration. And it's, and it, I think, hopefully, this is a very different Israel story than we know. And it maybe uh, asks us um, to engage with Israel a little differently. I, I'll pause in case anyone has a question here. Taibel, I see your hand is up. Yes, it's not a question, but if it's okay, I have two comments. Yeah. Um, and, in part, uh, and in part because... The way I grew up, where you're always, uh, have to be careful about anti-Semitism. And I'll even say, uh, one of my uncles, um, who was a Judaic historian and librarian wrote a monograph on blood libels in the United States, which all of a sudden, alas, he's been dead for many years, but all of a sudden his monograph is living on. But one of your wording, I just wanted to get you to clarify. That despite sure. all, all these waves of immigration, there were Jews that in, had not really left the land. Of there course. Were, uh, no, no, but, but just some of the wording when you were saying the Ashkenazim came in, da, 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 but there really were Jews. And even, um, as of course you would know, great Jewish philanthropists buying land during Ottoman, the Ottoman rule. <clears throat> mandatory Palestine, so the poor Jews could continue to live where they live. That's one. And the other is that I guess sometimes I get troubled by analogies with the United States because, and maybe, at least this is how it feels to me, I'll tell you about the analogy are, because I think it's very important to remember context and not look at things ahistorically anachronistically. And what I mean by that is when the United States started its independence and the whole thing you were discussing about um, the Northeast Corridor going back in many ways to colonial times, Route 1, whatever, whatever, the America's economic engine at the time of independence Yes, absolutely slavery in the South, but all sorts of other things. It was a very different engine than Israel, who had to take weapons that basically didn't work and give them to people who hadn't recovered from being in killing camps to try to defend Israel. So, and by the way, I have seen more than once this particular Haggadah. I also collect Haggadahs. I know this Haggadah. So I'm not saying... I'm not saying that these weren't wrongs that absolutely have to be righted, but what I am saying is that the leadership at the time of Israeli independence, both economically and in terms of material, had to make all sorts of decisions that then became institutionalized that weren't necessarily the decision that they might, decisions they might have wanted to make idealistically. Idealistically, let me go back to, I'm not going to get into Mizrahi and Yemenites or whatever. Let me just do it with that poor 
show a survivor who's stepping off the ship in a, in a better world. The new country would have said, you will never have to fight. You can go here and recover. And instead, many of them thought their names were never known, whatever. I'm just saying that sometimes decisions get made that are made in the heat of the moment and then they become institutionalized and then part of the infrastructure and they're harder to undo. So comparing certain things, Israel to America, I don't think is a fair comparison because America the enemies had to sail here. You know, England, Great Britain had to sail here to get here. There was a different economic engine, and now I'm done. Oop, I accidentally muted instead of unmuted. Okay, I'm back. Um, fair enough, Tybal. So I'm just going to address quickly your two points. The first is just to say, I think, I hope I did, I wasn't clear. I, I, um, I wasn't confusing. Absolutely. Um, there's all, there's always been, um, a Jewish presence in the land of Israel. I would, you know, obviously it's very small and very poor. Uh, and, and I think I, tr- I tried to stress that, especially vis-a-vis, um, Mizrahim, um, in the sense that when they were coming in, in those pre-state years, they very much weren't a part of this, like, narrative and move that we were, that we were, um, kind of talking about, which was this, um, political Zionism kind of inspired by 19th century European nationalism, they were coming as religious pilgrims. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's what there was. There was this small community in Jerusalem. There was this small community in, in Svat. There was, um, absolute, absolutely, absolutely. So, um, I'll, I'll just reiterate what you said. Um, I don't know <laughs> to the other part, the comparisons piece. Um, I both hear, that comparisons can be sloppy and can be confusing, but I also think they can be clarifying. Um, and no, and, and they help. I, I think we, um, understand things by seeing them through the filters and stories we already have. And I think frankly, especially here where, um, these young Mizrahi, um, most of them kind of born abroad and came as small kids, but um, some of them native born um, who kind of founded the um, Israeli Black Panthers, the Pantarim Hashorim, um, they were doing exactly what, what, what we're saying might be difficult, which is they were um, deft consumers of post-war um, culture where America is already the dominant cultural presence and they're watching stories in the United States of the struggle of African Americans here in the U.S. Um, for more rights, for better distribution of, of resources. They're seeing this story of folks who live in kind of um, who who didn't get access to the benefits kind of post World War II that white Americans got access to. It's all, all the stories we know, um, and they're saying, "Wait a minute! There, something about that story resonates with me." And therefore, I want to use, they're deliberately using this image of the Black Panther. Um, and they're saying, this, this is my story too. And then very, what I think as frankly, as like, as a, as a rabbi is so awesome. And hopefully as, as other educated Jewish consumers of this story is really cool is they're, they're taking a story, um, that's, 
not their story and, 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 but, but that resonates with them and using images from it. And then they're reaching deep into the Jewish canon and really, they're really knowledgeable Jews. They are, they're taking Haggadah and they're playing with that story and using it to say, Hey, government, we want to be treated better. And we're going to use this story in such a way to say that you're treating us like, like, not like we're Jews coming home to Israel, but like you're our Egyptian taskmasters. It hurts. It hurts to hear the story told that way. We don't, we don't want to hear, um, people calling the government of the state of Israel, the, especially Jews saying the government of the state of Israel is treating us like Egyptian taskmasters, but that's exactly what they're doing. So there, I, it's not for me to say, um, they can't do that. You know, I shouldn't be using this analogy. They used it. It's their, it's their, um, they seized it themselves and decided to use it. I, I Tybo, if it's a short question, why don't you jump in? And yeah, then I, um, I, have a- I wasn't talking, I wasn't talking about their use of the Black Panther imagery. I was talking that I had, that I don't think is a historic, whatever. I was talking about comparing the founding years. No, no. So what I, I actually, what I was trying to use the different sense is just, I was just trying to use the image of, I, I'm sorry if that was confusing. I was trying to use the image of like, there are periphery. I was just trying to explain this idea of periphery and center and economic opportunity. And just simply to say, if you were plopped down today in the Acela corridor, it might be easier to get a job than if you were plopped down in Kentucky. There just might be more economic opportunity. I, I don't know if that's correct, but just to say that there are peripheries and there are centers to all, all places. And we know America. So I just use the American models of what is periphery and what is center to say, Hey, wait a minute. Even when, you know, uh, an immigrant from Morocco or Tunis or Iraq, um, if they were finally given a, a home, if it were in, Dimona in the middle of the Negev, they might have a lot less opportunity than if it were in uh, Haifa or Tel Aviv, where there's just a lot. There was a lot of economic opportunity, even even in those kind of relatively poor years of the 50s and say truly poor, the 50s of, of the state of Israel. All right. We have 20 minutes left. Let's pivot to story two. Uh, I started. I, if you could believe it, uh, frankly, to me, this was uh, not yet on the next screen, Ari. But um, I uh, I started with the softer story, um, um, and we we can bring it down. We can get bigger, Ari. Uh, you can take take off the Panthers Haggadah. Let's just bring our our all of us together again briefly, and then um, I, I'll have one other image to share. Uh, the other the other story I, I wanted to talk about was kind of rethinking, just as we rethought this story of. Um, this, the narrative of Ari Ben Kanaan as Paul, you know, played by Paul Newman. Um, I, I want to talk about this, the story of Palestinian, uh, citizens of the state of Israel. So I'm, I, I'm not going to dip into, cause we'd need another six hours, um, the store post 67, the occupation of the West Bank. Uh, I, I just want to talk about, um, what are, People, some people call Arab Israelis, some people call Palestinian Israelis, some people call Israeli Palestinians, some people call Israeli Arabs. Uh, let, 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 um, folks of this community choose the, the self-describing, uh, title they wish. Um, and different polling is showing different things. I think more folks are embracing the title of Palestinian Israelis. So I'll, I'll use that. That seems to have become internally in that community the more popular, um, 
way of way of kind of fi- finding a name for for itself. But we 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 um we like we we love that that image, and it's unclear exactly where it came from. It seems to have probably not even come from a Jewish source. It seems to have come from evangelical British Christian sources. But um this idea of a land without a people for a people without a land. This idea of the Jews being able to return to um mandate or maybe first Ottoman Palestine and then British mandatory Palestine to Eretz Israel, um because they are a people without a land. Namely, you know, they're, they're Jews living throughout Europe, throughout the Middle East, but they don't have their own homeland. And here's this place that doesn't, um, that is a land without a people. There's nobody who lives there. And, for, and obviously there were people who were living there. Um, there, there's an indigenous Arab Palestinian population who are there. Um, they're, they're, um, there, there's probably something like, um, you know, seven, eight, nine hundred thousand um, uh, Arab Palestinian um, uh, inhabitants in the in Mandatory Palestine uh, during the war, and I'm not going to litigate exactly how and why and, and to w- which cause the bulk of them left. But um, after the after the war in '48, roughly um, six, seven, some uh, seven hundred thousand of them flee uh, across the borders, and you have about. 150,000 plus minus 10, 20, 30,000. I, I, you know, I, let's not again litigate the exact details, but something like 150,000, um, um, Palestinian Israelis left behind who, who are, who are made full citizens of the state. They're, they live under military law until 66. Um, and then they, they're, that's kind of lifted about a year before the 67 war and the, and the, we all know, or maybe we don't, but we'll presume we know Israel doesn't have a constitution, but it does have a founding document, um, which is most famously the Declaration of Independence. And I'm just going to read a clause from that that I think um, highlights the best ideals of how folks should be stated. It's it's uh, I'll read the full paragraph. There's that, that the second half of it that I think is the key piece of this. Um the, the founders of the state of Israel say in, in their declaration, the state of Israel will be open for Jewish immigration and for the ingathering of the exiles. It will foster the development of the country for the benefit of all of its inhabitants. It will be based on freedom, justice, and peace as envisaged by the prophets of Israel. And then it continues, it will ensure complete equality of social and political rights to all its inhabitants, irrespective of religion, race, or sex. It will guarantee freedom of religion, conscience, language, education, and culture. It will safeguard the holy places of all religions, and it will be faithful to the principles of the Charter of the UN. So that's that's the, kind of the ideals when the state is founded in '48. Um, that's that. Those are the ideals in the um, in the in the Declaration of Independence. Oh, look! How cool is that? Um, I think Tybel brought up that clause from impressive uh, from the um, uh, from the Declaration of Independence of, of the State of Israel. So that's that's the ideals in the Declaration. And then I'm going to ask uh, Ari if you're still with us and not in your second Zoom that you're um, that you're you're um, running. Um, just a, an image. Um, so there is President Reuven Rivlin, uh, recently, I guess in the last year and a half or so, 
um, former uh, president of the state of Israel, just to remember today is uh, a good day to remember that um, Israel is a um, has a unicameral legislature. So it has a Knesset. Um, the prime minister um, comes out of the Knesset and then becomes the executive. And then the but the then becomes the head of government, and then there's a head of state who's much like the 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 late Queen of England of blessed memory and the new king. They are you know essentially uh, they're a head of state that's that's um, that's they're mostly ninety nine point nine percent for ceremonial purposes, but they do have to sign new laws into um, into being, or they have to resign if they won't sign new laws into creation. And so uh, until ooh, I should have looked up the the when uh, Bougie Herzog took over as president sometime I don't know a year and a half ago, into, for ten years, uh, Ruven Rivlin, former Likud member of Knesset for his entire career. Um, but, um, despite being from the right, I, I'm, I, I don't work for Temple Betham. Frankly, I can, I don't need to worry about getting into trouble, I'll, but not like today's Likud, I'll say it. And not like today's Republican party, a, a, a believer in democratic institutions. Um, Ruven Rivlin, um, was, was a beloved figure kind of across the political spectrum and, 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 and beloved by, Really cared about all of the state's citizens. Um, and then in the, in the 2010s, there was this effort to put forward essentially a new basic law. Israel, again, doesn't have a constitution. It, um, it's passed a series of basic laws that enshrine mostly rights for all kinds of people. Uh, in 2018, a, for the first time in the history of the state, uh, Chokalaum, a nation state law was passed that really took um, took Israel instead in the opposite direction, and particularly vis-a-vis minority um, Arab citizens, minority Palestinian citizens. And I'll just read, it's a short two, um, two-page, two give or take, um, uh, law that ba- became a basic law. And uh, I'll just read kind of two places where it really, really upset uh, folks. The first was a clause in basic principles. It said exercising the right to national self-determination in the state of Israel is unique to the Jewish people. So again, that was felt as um, really undercutting the rights of, of minority Palestinian citizens of the state. And then in clause four, it talked about language. It said the state's language is Hebrew. The Arabic language has a special status, regulation of the use of Arabic in no in or with government institutions will be according to the law. Nothing is intended to harm the practical status of Arabic. But so both it kind of canonized at a higher level the rights of Jews to self-determination in the state of Israel, unique to the Jewish people. And that it also kind of de, um, I'm looking for the right word here. It, um, lowered the power of the status of Arabic in the, in the, in, in, um, in state institutions from being an official state language to being a language with a special status. And it felt like a terrible thumb in the eye to um, Palestinian citizens of the state, descendants of those 150,000 folks who remained in 48. So another title those people are sometimes known as is 48ers, um, f- folks who had really begun over the last couple of decades to integrate into the state. Um, 
getting better educations, um, certain professions really finding a home in them and feeling like they were once again, they were going back to pre-66. They were going back to, um, obviously, they were still facing discrimination, but a new level of discrimination. And Rivlin, the reason I chose this image as our image uh, to have on the screen, when this law was being coming up for the votes, Reuven Rivlin famously said, um, that's his face there, and that's his signature below it. He said, I am the president of the state of Israel. I'm the president of all of its citizens. I'm not allowed, I must sign any law that's put in front of me or I have to resign. This is not a, I'm not the king or, or, um, I'm the, I'm a constitutional head of state. So I will sign it. But if you, I will show my protest against the passage of this law by signing it in Arabic. If you put this law in front of me and I'll show that again, this is a Likud, someone who spent his career in the right of center party. He said, if you, if you put this in front of me, I'll sign it in Arabic. And so that there's Rivlin. That's kind of a, that's his, his name there. And Ruven Rivlin Nasia Medina. You see, he signed it in Hebrew and then below it in Arabic to show his, his deep protest. Um, so what I, what I, why I'm sharing this artifact is to, to once again kind of explode or, or reframe or question or, um, complicate, productively complicate our telling of, of this very basic, back to the basic story of the state of Israel. We, we tell, we like to tell this story of a land without a people for a people without a land. And, and, um, there, there was a people there. Um, it's been a complicated story, but they're, they're, they've faced, um, discrimination. They've worked to overcome that discrimination. And this was a real, awful step in the wrong direction back in 2018. And and I think what I'd like to offer, just as um, Reuven Abergel and the, and the Israeli Black Panthers saying, wait a minute, we're going to use um, the story of the Haggadah and use our, our vote and use our right to protest as a way to push back against the discrimination we're facing and, and vote out a government that isn't treating us right and organize and build our own kindergartens um, as a way to um, push back against the discrimination we're facing. I think uh, Rivlin was offering similarly by by embracing uh, the use of Arabic, by looking for opportunities to advance Arab citizens. Frankly, um, what this um, what this last government started to do uh, in its year in office and um NIF, New Israel Fund, where I work, it was a big piece of our, our last year of work was helping, um, Palestinian Israelis. So Arab Israelis. So Arab Israeli citizen organizations who are looking to, um, and within the government to get more funding, um, to their sector, more housing to be built, better schools to be built, hospitals to be put up closer to where they live on the, in the periphery. Um, there was, there's, a lot more funding made available and passed by this outgoing government. Electricity, water, yes, exactly, especially for not uh, – we think, I think, a lot about um, Arab citizens in the north um, who tend to be better integrated. But especially for Bedouin citizens in the south, water and electricity is the is, – is, it's as simple as that um, – a lot of Bedouin citizens live in what are called unrecognized villages. We've gone back and forth with the state to say whether they're allowed to live on the land they've lived on. Um, and simply fighting, and they had a tremendous victory. And again, New Israel Fund was instrumental in this. Making sure that bus stops are put up near these villages. These are often the poorest citizens 
They don't own cars of their own. They need to uh, take a public bus to get to a job to bring home uh, food for their families and simply making sure that a bus stop is put outside of their village. You, those who have been to the Negev in the summer know how, how beastly and how horribly hot it can be. If you just simply have to walk out of your village and get on an air-conditioned bus, okay, you can get a ride to a job somewhere else. But if you have to leave your village and walk three or four miles down the highway to get to a the next bus stop that's near a recognized city, it makes it makes employment that much more difficult. So um, small um, measures to make the lives of those citizens um, better is is really a critical way of pushing back against this uh, nation state law that was passed in 2018. So um, we have seven minutes left. I, I'm kind of going to open it back up to questions. I, I'll, I'll just simply say um, it's not easy to take a story we know really well, to take a story we could be woken up at 3 a.m. and tell perfectly, and to say, wait a minute, this story is more complicated than the way I've always wanted to tell it. But I I think it's um, critical as folks who I, I'm sure I'm sure if you're listening to this or if you're here, you're somebody who cares deeply about the state of Israel, even though you're an American, um, a, a Jewish American or an American Jew, no, either, whatever, either, whichever way you like to identify, you care very deeply about um, your relationship as an American, as a Jew with the state of Israel and um, hearing that story complicated is hard, but um, it also can be instructive in how we can work um, not only to make the safe more state uh, more safe from external enemies, but also um, more um, just, more equitable, more shared, um, more kind, and and frankly, make sure it has a more uh, a sunnier future um, than it otherwise would have. So that's that's why I wanted to complicate the story, and I hope it was helpful. Now, now we only have six minutes, but if Jackie or Tybal has any questions they'd like to ask, uh, here I am. Ari, you too. You're welcome to ask questions. <laughs> Looks like Tybal has her hand raised. Uh, I'm, I'm not shocked. What can I say? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, it's that firstborn thing. So um, I did wait to see for Jackie and Ari, but I thought if it's okay, maybe I would Please. leave back to the Pittsburgh because in a way, this analogy, American analogy works for me when one thinks about um, minorities and there's such a complicated set of minorities in Israel, uh, all sorts of ways. But it's like for me... Um, what it was like being the only family on the street that didn't put out Luminaria. And I'm not even going to explain mm. what that is. And that was year after year, hate and hostility. But also in my in the public school, which, of course, closed for Good Friday and the Pope got it wrong. So wouldn't for decades serve meat on Friday. Um, it's. For me, this has always felt like a very Christian country in a way that's uncomfortable. And to me, that's an analogy that does work if the thing that I had put up because I had taught it, I don't remember how long ago, that if um, citizens are supposed to have equal rights, that means the majority has to be have extra, I'm going to use a Jewish thing, extra Rahmanas for the minorities. And I think and we can see it now in political discourse where once again, uh, my Pittsburgh childhood is rearing its head, not Roman Catholics, but evangelicals. And 
other things where um, minorities' rights are not being considered in the same way. Anyway, so the Pittsburgh opening of Pittsburgh closed, and I think the, for me at least, understanding the difficulties. Well, even though worse, because the basic rights, when I added the water and electricity, to me, things like that are just beyond appalling at this point. You know, we're not, it's not 1948, 1949 anymore. It's just horrifying. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Tybal. I I shouldn't confess this in front of Jackie, but um, I don't, and I don't remember where it's settled upon that Ziegler is doing its um, Israel year this year. But back in, back in my day, um the Israel year was still at Mahon Schechter, and I won't tell you which, but I had a class that was in the big library room, and I would sit in the back of the room. We're at CY mostly, at the conservative yeshiva, Jackie says. So I was I was at uh, – my rabbinical school year was at Mahon Schechter, and I would sit in the back of of the classroom. It was a very boring class, and there were old bound issues of various journals. And I pulled one off the wall one year, and it was a 1949, 50, 51, like her first couple of years. It was a journalist's long account of a trip. They were taken to the kind of the Israel in its first years, and they were just talking about just how deeply. I mean, uh, Tybel brought up this idea of, of water and electricity. They were talking about taking a bus. The image from that article that stuck with me was this very standing on a bus, this journalist um, in Tel Aviv. And there was a immaculately dressed, must have been a Holocaust survivor, German Jew next to them, who was in a tailored suit and had was holding in noose wrapped in newspaper a carp. And they were the, the journalist had chatted with them and said, what, what are you doing? And he said, I'm coming back from work and we haven't had animal protein in in quite a while. And there was a seller who was selling carp. (laughs) So I bought it. And here I'm running home to my family because we'll have carp for dinner tonight. Um, That was just an image of 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 kind of the deprivation of those early years. No one or the the kibbutzim had a little more. But basically, there was there was very little to go around. And then as the state became um, wealthier. There was more. Um, but but yes, there are still, um, again, to reinforce what Teibel had said, there are the, the minorities are complicated. The story of East Jerusalem uh, Palestinians is not the same as Galilee Palestinians is not the same as those who live in the triangle is not the same as um, Ethiopian immig- um, immigrants to the state or Russian immigrants or Bedouins who live in the Negev. And, and I think the, the fact that they're still not water lines running to where those folks are living is, is just a terrible injustice. Um, and, and one we can, we can push back on, um, as uh, where, where we decide to frankly put our charitable dollars in, in Israel is not with those who are trying to turn the Negev into, um, uh, Jewish only paradise, but who are trying to make it a, a, a more equitable and just distribution of resources there. So, um, be thoughtful, be thoughtful philanthropists. Jackie had a question about how we can learn more, um, about, about multiple narratives. I, I, I mean, frankly, I think the best book that has come out that'll tell us a more complicated story is my boss's book. Um, uh, Daniel Sokatch, my, my, our, my, 
boss at NIF, our CEO, wrote a book a year or two ago, which is coming out in paperback um, now. It was it was only in hardback for the last year. And now I think any day now the paperback is coming out. Um, it's called Can We Talk About Israel? And it does a really good job of um, telling a complex but loving story of, of the state of Israel. So uh, a 2.0 to my 1.0 class. Um, and and read stuff that comes from us at NIF. I think you'll get a similarly dedicated and invested and um, uh, complicated story of, of a relationship with Israel. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.